Friends, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, look in front of you on the back of the pew or the seat or look next to you maybe down the pew. You should see one, a little black hard copy of the Bible that uh, we'd love for you to take as your own. We're going to be looking at a, a passage from the Bible that's on page 903 of those little Bibles that should be hopefully in arm's reach for you. Uh, this spring, I am extending my career as a uh, manager of a baseball team. Uh, I'm having a blast coaching my son's five and six-year-old coach pitch baseball team. This age group, we boil everything down to the basics. And I mean we boil it way down. We do like four drills every practice. Two of those drills... Show the boys and girls what to do on offense. Two of those drills show them what to do on defense. What do baseball players do on offense, I'll say? We hit the baseball with our bats. That's step one. We run as fast as we can to the next base. That's step two. And we do it over and over and over and over again. I mean, one of our drills is I actually stand up there with a bat. I just have the kids line up at the plate. And every time I hit the ball, when they hear that sound, they go. Because you know what happens in a the game. They forget to run. Great hits. Stand there with the bat, waiting on, wondering what to do next. We run to first. We run to first. We run to first. What do you do on defense? You're playing baseball. Two things. When the ball comes your way, you catch the ball like an alligator, not like a turtle. If you go like a turtle, it comes right under your glove, like an alligator every time. So at that drill, we just roll it, roll it, roll it. And what do you do once you've caught that ball like an alligator? There is one thing you do in five and six-year-old coach pitch. You throw it to first. You throw it to first. You throw it to first. And not like a T-Rex. We got a lot of T-Rex arms. You throw it like a baseball player. And that's our drill. Those four drills every practice. Rinse and repeat. Why? Because at this level of baseball, at this level of life, there are just so many other things to think about. So many things that might steal your attention in the middle of a game. I mean, for example, you're standing there on what's basically an endless supply of red dirt. <laughs> you can mound it up into big piles. You can draw in it. You can throw it on your teammates. You can make dirt angels. These are not hypothetical scenarios. I've seen every one of them <laughs> in our games. Not to mention, I mean, we play at Shelby Park over here, East Nashville Athletics Little League. At Shelby Park, right next to the Little League fields, there is a train trestle that's like 50, 100 feet. I don't know how high this thing is. Up in the air, right there next to the park and at least twice per game a train a mile long goes down that train trestle what are you going to be looking at if you're five years old and there's a train going over your head it's like they didn't even think about that when they put that train trestle there not to mention the fact that you've got so many people hollering at you in the middle of the game. I mean, your parents are screaming at you. The fans are screaming at you. You're trying to decide whether or not to listen to your dad over here by the fence or your coach who's right there next to you telling you what to do, not always telling you the same things. You've got a lot of stuff to turn your head. So you need to drill the basics. 
till they're unforgettable, till they're instinct, till they're just in your bones. We drill them in the basics because the basics are essential to remember and easy to forget. What's Christianity about if you boil it down to its basics? How would you put it? What would make it into your summary? I mean, maybe that question is what brought you here today. And you're like, hey, that's your job, buddy. Don't ask me what, the, what Christianity is all about. It's Easter. And I figured what better time to come and figure out what it is that Christians are, 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 are believing, what they're into. If that's you today, if you came here because you knew this is a big deal to us this day and this would be a good time to, to learn what the basics are, you've come to the right place. I'm so happy that that's what's brought you here today. And, and, and the text that we're going to be looking at from the scriptures we've chosen for this day and with you in mind, because it is perhaps the most basic and certainly the oldest written summary of what Christians believe and how you get in on it that you'll find anywhere. We're going to be looking at a section in, in an ancient letter written by one of Christianity's founders, a man named, named Paul, who, who in these verses basically gives us an executive summary of the whole thing. He describes what he tells us here as those things that are of first importance. It's the perfect place to look if you're considering Christianity for the first time. And you know what? It's also precisely what you need if you've been a Christian for 50 years. You don't outgrow these basics. And in our lives, we go through things that cloud our vision of what we're hoping in. Our heads get turned by other offers, by other hopes that seem more reliable or more fulfilling. Our ears hear the call of other voices every day. And in fact, it's Christians that Paul had in mind when he reminds them of these basics of Christianity. He's writing to people who would believe these things when he brought them. To, the, to their city. And he wants them to know now in their bones what they believe already. So no matter if you're here in a church for the very first time and have no idea how you'd summarize Christianity, or you're here in this church where you've gone for your whole life, you need to hear what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. I want to begin by reading that text. Would you please stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up in verse 1 of chapter 15. Paul writes, Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, uh, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to walk you through the basics with four questions. Four questions this morning to take us through these 11 verses. Question number one, what do Christians believe about Jesus? I'm going to state all four of them up front and we'll come back to them one by one. Question number two, why should I believe this message is true? Question number three, how can I receive this message myself? Then question number four, how will it change my life if I do? That's where we're headed. Question number one, what do Christians believe about Jesus? Let me sum it up for you. Christians believe that Jesus died and rose again to rescue those who trust in him. That's our belief. He died and rose again to rescue those who trust in him. There is a common confusion about Jesus out there. It's been out there since the days Jesus walked the earth himself. In the gospels, you'll see Jesus talking to his own followers about this confusion related to who he is. And the confusion I'm talking about always comes from trying to put Jesus into a category we have for other famous or influential leaders. It's easy to put him in the wrong category. I grew up in Alabama. Uh, Two of the great heroes that you learn about in our state history are Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King, who were both working together with great influence and great effectiveness during the civil rights movement in the history of our state. Uh, They were very influential at first with the Montgomery uh, bus boycott, uh, then through the march at Selma, and and then their, their influence spread all over the country. In a lot of ways, Jesus is similar to Rosa Parks, like her. He had the courage to stand up against people who were doing wrong. Stand up to the crowd, even when he he knew that it would cost him. Like Martin Luther King, Jesus was an amazing teacher. He taught about love and he practiced what he preached. and, And people followed him from all over, huge crowds, just like MLK. And like Martin Luther King, what Jesus taught got Jesus killed by people who hated him and who hated and resented and envied the crowds who were following him. And you know what? Paul actually does believe that Jesus is a great example to follow, just like Rosa Parks. Jesus is a great teacher, just like Martin Luther King. Paul affirms that elsewhere. So does the rest of the New Testament. But when Paul gets to what he calls first importance, When he sums up what is the essence of our belief about Jesus, it's not what we learned from him. It's not what we saw in him. It's what he did for us. Paul goes to his death and his resurrection. Look with me back at verse three. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What is it? What's of first importance? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance 
with the scriptures. These are the core beliefs Christians have about Jesus. Let me show you. There's really three things here to see. Christians believe that Jesus died and rose again. Jesus was not the first famous religious leader to die in duty. John the Baptist died a few years before Jesus did. Any number of Israel's prophets had died because of their faithfulness to God. And of course, all of Israel's history, uh, uh, heroes eventually died. Moses died, David died, every single one of the prophets died of natural causes if they weren't killed. Jesus wasn't unique in dying. But Paul says, and Christians believe, Jesus died and rose again in a body as real as the one that was killed, in a body as real as yours or mine. The second thing reflected here is that Christians believe that he died and rose again on purpose. This was his plan all along. That's what Paul has in mind when he says that he died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. In other words, he came here fulfilling a plan laid out hundreds of years before him. And Paul in another letter will take it even further back from that. He came to execute a plan that he had made before the foundation of the world. Martin Luther King's death was tragic. You could say the same for Gandhi or for John the Baptist or for that matter for any first responder who goes into an active shooter situation or charges into a burning building. These heroes are willing to die if necessary. But they hope not to. It would be better to live. Jesus lived to die so that he could rise again. And the third thing reflected here in what Paul says and what we believe is that he died and rose again to rescue us. His mission was a rescue mission. Verse three, Christ died for our sins. He died on purpose because this was how he could rescue sinners. And a few verses later, beyond what we read, Paul says basically the same thing about his resurrection. That just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. When on the third day he was, he was raised again from the dead, when he walked out of that tomb, it wasn't just for himself. He walked out as a preview of the future of everyone who will ever trust in him. Paul calls it first fruits. An image from the harvest. Once that first shoot comes up, once that first stalk bears that first grain, you know the rest of the harvest is coming too. It's all connected. Jesus is like those first daffodils of spring that pop up even when there's snow on the ground. Beautiful and yellow and a promise that coming after these daffodils are tulips and cherry blossoms and all the things blooming out there right now outside these walls. It's just a matter of time. He died and rose again for us. Can you see how different these claims are from things we normally associate with heroes and religious leaders? It's, just different. it's a different animal when you come to Christianity. Buddha was known as a great teacher. Muhammad was known as a great prophet and lawgiver. David or Moses were great examples to follow. And Jesus was all of those things and more. But at root of first importance was not what he taught and not how he lived, but what he 
did to rescue his people. Friends, it's the difference between, between marveling at a triathlete whose run and swim times you admire, you know, try to imitate best you can, but mostly just are in awe of. And the lifeguard whose run and swim time is the difference between you drowning and you getting back to shore to your family. Christianity is not, first and foremost, a system of rules to follow. It is built instead on a message of hope for those who know they need it. All of which is to say, guys, if you don't see sin and death as big problems that you can't solve for yourself, Jesus won't make much sense to you. At the root of everything broken in this world is the problem of our sin. Every one of us has rejected God's care and the rules that come to us from his love. We've rejected his ways in favor of our agenda, our world on our terms that ultimately serve us. And that sin against God, it lies at the root of every trace of envy, every bit of bitterness, every cutting word, and every dropped bomb in every war that's ever happened. It lies at the root of death itself, which was a response to our sin. Sin is not somebody else's problem, neither is death. These are my problems, these are your problems. And Jesus died to account for them. And you know what? When he walked out of his grave, you know what that says. When he died for your sins, he got the job done. It's all over now. Death has no power over those whose sins have been forgiven. That's what his rising again means for us. Death is no problem now. That's what Christians believe about Jesus. So maybe you're thinking, sounds great. Wouldn't that be nice? Now I know what Christians believe about Jesus. Sounds awesome. It would be great if true, but I mean, wouldn't it also be great if somewhere over the rainbow, skies are blue and the dreams that I've dreamed really will come true? That'd be great. Some place where troubles melt like lemon drops above the chimney tops, etc., etc., all that jazz. Why is this not just more wishful thinking? If we all know death is a big problem, no one's really got a solution for it, wouldn't it make sense that ancient people would come up with stories about death-defeating heroes and never-never lands where no one has to worry about crying or sorrow or death anymore? Why should I believe it's actually true? You know, on the same bankable level as death and taxes. I hope that's the question you're asking. Question number two for this morning that Paul answers for us. Why should I believe this message is true? What you can see from 1 Corinthians 15 is that ancient people were no more gullible about death than you or I. Ancient people knew that dead people don't come back to life. At this point, the time when Paul was writing, there was no major religion, no major philosophy out there that taught anyone to want that or expect that. They had ideas about the afterlife where you'd go in your soul. 
Sometimes those were good places and sometimes they weren't. Nobody was talking about bodies that come back to life. They weren't looking for that. They didn't want that. And they knew better than to believe that that was possible. That's why, beginning in verse 5, Paul takes them from the realm of wishful thinking to the realm of real history where real people saw a real man who really died really alive again. Look at verses four and five with me. He takes them to the fact that Jesus was buried. It was a real death. He needed a real tomb. And then to the fact that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then verse five, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Then to the 12 Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Then he appeared to James, that's probably Jesus' own brother. Then he appeared to all of the apostles. And then last but not least, as to one untimely born, Paul says, he appeared to me. I saw him with my own eyes. Can you see that what Paul is doing here is trying to take this story, these sets of beliefs, out of the realm of fairy tales and into the realm of the real world. Fairy tales begin with once upon a time. This story happens on the third day. A time stamp, boom, in real time, in the real world. Then Paul goes to these real people who really saw him. Names they would have known. Names they would have respected. And in case the individual names weren't getting it done, this huge group of 500 who all saw him together all at once, most of whom are still alive and could be asked about it. Paul is building his case on evidence. Paul's doing the work of a historian here. He's not a fairy tale writer. He thinks it's all true and confirmable with, with, with reasons that the mind can understand. That's because he knows his audience is going to have a hard time believing this is possible. They aren't gullible. He's not crazy. And the only reason he's telling them this thing that sounds crazy is that it really happened and credible eyewitnesses can confirm it. What makes eyewitness testimony credible? What makes it believable when somebody tells you they saw something? At least three things that are all true here. It can't just be hearsay for one thing. And this evidence isn't. It's direct. It's recent. It's personal. That's why Paul emphasizes these specific names. That's why he he tells them, these guys are still alive. You can go talk to them if you want to. He's not building a legend 200 years after whenever the things were supposed to have happened. Scholars date this letter right here. 15 to 20 years after Jesus lived and died. That's more recent than if you were writing today about the September 11th attacks. That's how recent this is. This is no legend added to by generation after generation, centuries later. It's not hearsay. It's direct. Secondly, it's not isolated either. You know, lots of people claim to have seen Bigfoot. A lot of people claim to have seen the Loch Ness Monster. Not many of them had friends around to see it when they did. You know, Bigfoot's great about coming out just when somebody's all by themselves in the woods. The Loch Ness Monster is great about appearing just as that person drives alone along the shores of the lake. But 
Paul lists off hundreds of people who could confirm that they all saw him together. These were account. I mean, you could easily falsify this if it weren't true. It was still recent enough, and there were plenty of people you could talk to about it. And then finally, I think the most compelling thing to me about this eyewitness testimony, it's not self-serving either. It's not self-serving. In other words, those who were passing on what they saw didn't stand to gain anything. In fact, they often stood to lose their lives over what they said they saw. Now, some of you guys have heard me tell this before, but uh, uh, you know, we come from this small county in southwest Alabama, uh, right next to a, a town that has described itself as the Bigfoot capital of Alabama. It's got a statue and everything. Uh, a couple of years ago, a fellow named Jay Scooter McGillicuddy claimed to have shot and killed Bigfoot in his own backyard, having mistaken him for a bear or some other predator after his stuff. Uh, calls in the local paper, of course, because who wouldn't? Claims that he shot him with his hunting rifle, but uh, authorities swooped in, confiscated their phones and all the photo evidence they had of, of, of Bigfoot laying there dead. Took the phones away. So now you're just going to have to take J. Scooter McGillicuddy's word for it. Now, J. Scooter McGillicuddy, he had a lot to gain, right? He got his day in the sun. He was in the Monroe Journal. <laughs> I think it was even the front page with a picture of him, if not Bigfoot. Got some notoriety about him. I'm talking about him right here in Nashville, Tennessee, two years later. At the very least, that claim didn't cost him a thing. But these eyewitnesses that Paul's talking about, the ones we know about by name, they died for what they said they saw. Paul went on to die. And for as long as he lived, passing on what he'd seen with his own eyes, he was hounded by the Jews who saw it as a threat and laughed out of town by the Greeks who thought it was ridiculous. These are not self-serving claims. These were incriminating claims. These claims about what these witnesses, including Paul, have seen with their own eyes are substantial and they're trustworthy. As a group, guys, this eyewitness testimony here that Paul is pointing to, it's stronger than basically anything that we have for anything else we believe about the ancient world from this time. The same kind of evidence and more of it than most of what you hear in your Western civilization class or whatever in college. And I would love the chance to talk to you more about this evidence and to, to point you in the right place to dig deeper if you're interested. From now, on to question three. We've talked about what Christians believe about Jesus and, and how you can know that this, these claims are true. Question number three is this. How could I receive this message myself? How could I receive what Jesus offers as mine? How do I get in on it? And friends, this is, a, this is really simple and straightforward and clear all through the Bible. You can only get in on what Jesus has done by his grace to you through your faith in it. Only by grace through faith. In other words, what Jesus has done to rescue us, it's pure gift. 
And the only way to receive it is to accept that you don't deserve it, that you can't possibly deserve it. I mean, think about it. Look at this summary of what matters most that Paul has given us in these verses. He doesn't say a thing about what we're supposed to do. He doesn't give you one test of entry. He doesn't give you one test to pass. Not one rule even to follow. The New Testament has plenty of rules. He'll get there. But when he boils it down to what's of first importance, that's not what he has on his mind. There's a huge difference between Christianity and baseball on this front. You remember what I was talking about our practices, just learning the basics of what a baseball player does? We hit, we run, we throw, we catch, we do it again and again and again. And any hope we have for success depends on our ability to hit and run and catch and throw. We are the subject of all those verbs. Who's the subject of Paul's verbs when he gets down to what's of first importance? Christ died for our sins. Christ was really buried. Christ was raised on the third day. And Christ appeared to all these people. Paul's own story is a case in point. He goes there in verse 9. Verse 9 says, I'm the least of all the apostles. In fact, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He is exhibit A for the grace of God towards sinners. When Paul got himself on this list of eyewitnesses, he describes himself in verse 8 as one untimely born. It's a word that just means an abnormal birth, anything that's out of the ordinary. And for Paul, what was out of the ordinary is that he didn't see Jesus when Cephas did. And he didn't see Jesus when James did or when the rest of the 12 apostles saw him. He saw him way later. And he didn't see him sitting in a room, waiting and praying, hoping that Jesus was alive. When Jesus appeared to Paul, he appeared to him completely out of the blue. When Paul was on the road to Damascus, specifically to find and bind any Christian in that city. Acts chapter 9 tells this story. Paul is on the hunt when Jesus hunts him down. That's why he says, I'm unworthy to be one sent out. In the name of my Lord, I persecuted the church of God. That's who I was when Jesus met me. I was his enemy. What would you expect to happen when an enemy meets a victorious conquering king on a lonely road to a, to a, to a distant town? You know what did happen? Jesus forgave Paul for what he'd done. And not just to send him away into his own life. He restored Paul. He sent Paul out on his work. He put into Paul's hands the work that was most precious to him. Or as Paul puts it in verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. His life transformed by grace. That message runs against the grain of everything we expect about how our world works, doesn't it? How do you get into Harvard? 
You need really, really good test scores. You need a lot of extracurriculars that at least sound good, even if they're nothing to them. And you probably need to have some parents who can pay off an admissions officer. Later today, my beloved Atlanta Braves will start a rookie pitcher called up recently from the minor leagues. He was called up earlier this week for his first start in the big leagues because one of our stud pitchers got hurt and we needed somebody to fill in. Why did they call up Dodd to pitch these two games this week? Because he was lighting it up in spring training. Because his ERA through the spring was sub two. He earned his spot in the big leagues. But it doesn't work that way with Jesus. It does not work that way with Jesus. Our only hope, friends, is the hope Paul wrote about in his letter to the Romans in chapter 5. While we were still weak, with nothing to recommend us, certainly nothing to offer him, at that time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then later, as if that didn't get it done, Paul says, same chapter, actually, while we were still enemies, forget weak, forget nothing to offer, while we were enemies who were against him, even if we didn't know it, at that time, God reconciled us to him through his son. It is easy for us to assume that the only ones with any business in church are those who earn their spot, who have something to offer to God in exchange for what he's offering to them. You might even be thinking that this morning. You might be thinking, it's too late for me. I mean, all these people in here with their Easter clothes, if they even knew who it was that was sitting next to them, they'd be out of here. They'd go home and take a shower. What you need to know, if that's what you're wondering, is that that's not true for the record. You are not surrounded by people who have it all together. You're surrounded by people who are here precisely because they know they need help. who come in here with heads held high, not because of their fancy Easter clothes, but because they think they're dressed in the righteousness of Jesus who earned a track record they don't deserve but are happy to live in. And you need to know that whatever you've done by this point, whatever you think you can't come back from, you are not further gone than the apostle Paul was when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. Have you tried to destroy what is most precious to Christ? You are not further gone, not more unlikely than Paul was to be loved by the God who sent his son to offer you grace. Which leads me to question number four and what you should be asking now, and I hope you're asking now, and where I want to close. How will it change my life if I do accept this message? How will it change my life if I do believe that this is true and receive it through faith? It's important for you to ask that because truth in advertising, it will change everything. It will transform your life to receive this grace through Jesus. Just like it transformed Paul's. It'll transform your life in at least two ways. You may look like a fool, but you will live with hope. You may look like a fool, 
but you will live and die with hope. Let me tell you what I mean. You may look like a fool. Paul certainly did. Because God's grace transforms whatever it touches. Look at verse 10. He says, you know, I don't deserve any of this. By the grace of God, I am what I am. But I'll tell you this, his grace was not in vain. His grace left a mark. His grace transformed everything about my life. I worked harder than any of them because of God's grace. He's talking about his work to build the church. This work that took him all over the world. From one ship to another, one town to another, one stoning to another. That's the work he's talking about. I worked harder than any of them, but it was not I. It was the grace of God that is with me. When you receive this grace, it transforms your life and turns you into someone who does things that look silly if Christ is not really risen from the dead. Paul talks about this transformation in other letters. Philippians 3 is one of my favorite places where he does this. In Philippians chapter 3, he talks about this fast track that he was living on in a field that was the envy of his peers. He had it all. He had solid breeding. He had solid connections. He had a zeal and a passion that outpaced everybody else's. He had it all in his world. And when he became a Christian, he says, I turned my back on all of it. I consider it to be worthless, like, like a pile of dung is the word that he uses. All so that I could have Christ and be part of what he's doing in the world. He had been in the right clubs. He had been in the rooms where it happened. He had been celebrated. He had been envied. That was before. Now that he's a Christian, now that he's got Jesus, well, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he tells you what his life is like now. Beatings, imprisonment, stoning, Shipwreck, I'll carry on with his own words. In danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. This is my life now. You can see why he says a few verses after in our text, 1 Corinthians 15, down in verse 19. That if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We are fools. And friends, you may not end up shipwrecked or beaten because of your faith in Jesus like Paul did. But one way or another, if it's real faith, it will make a real difference in your life in ways that will look foolish to your friends and peers who don't share that faith. 1 Corinthians is a letter full of examples of what that looks like in practice. I'll just refer you there to the difference it'll make for how you see your money and those who don't have as much as you do, how you see your sex life, how you see the status obsession that's driving everyone else around you. It will change you to experience the grace of Jesus. And you may look like a fool to those who don't share your hope. But, but, there is nothing that you could give up for Jesus, that death wasn't gonna take from you anyway. And in Jesus, you will gain an unkillable hope that death cannot touch. A hope as living and indestructible as the resurrected body of Jesus. That's what you will gain. See, when Paul in, in, in 2 Corinthians 11, when he was listing off all those terrible things that happened to him, he wasn't actually complaining. It was in a whole section where what he was talking about is how, how his hope in Jesus held him through all of it. 
how his hope was refined, how, how the strength of God showed up in his weakness. As he lost everything, he realized what he had and what couldn't be taken from him. That's what the chapter is about. Do you have a hope like that? Friend, you are going to need one. It is actually what you need most and what you won't find anywhere else but Jesus. See, here's the thing. Most of you are really young. Lord willing, most of us in this room are currently really healthy. But all of us have a lot of death in our future. (laughs) That's just the reality. I know it's pretty. The sun is shining out there. This is a wonderful spring day and we're all happy about Easter. Easter won't mean much to you unless you realize I've got a lot of death in my future. Some of my dreams will die. Some of my relationships will die. I may lose my possessions. I will lose what innocence I've got left. I may lose my friends to death, my family. And whatever you take for granted will be turned upside down again and again, one way or another, until one day you die too. How do you face all that without a hope beyond its reach? How? Paul had that hope. My grandmother did too. My grandmother on my mother's side was one of the most godly people I've ever known. And one of my most treasured books in my library is a book that she gave me shortly before she died. It's a book by C.S. Lewis called A Grief Observed. It's a book he wrote to reflect on his own faith after losing his wife to disease. My grandmother devoured this book back in the late 70s, early 80s. It is full of her underlines and and all these marginal notes in her handwriting because she picked this book up for help dealing with the death of her youngest son, Matt, who died in a car accident on his way home from college a few years before I was born. One thing that she underlined a lot in this book was how grief and loss always tests the quality of your faith. It shows you what you're trusting in. Even more than that, it will show you whether what you're trusting in is worth trusting. Here's how Lewis puts it. You never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. Only a real risk tests the reality of a belief. Lewis talked about this using the analogy of a rope. It's easy to believe in a rope. You know, that rope will hold you, can can bear your weight as long as that rope is laying in the box where where it came from. It's another thing to be dangling from that rope, trusting it'll hold you while you hang on for dear life over the edge of a cliff. In that situation, you learn, (laughs) you learn what it is you believe And you learn whether what you're trusting is worth trusting. A few pages later, after Lewis lays out that analogy, my grandmother wrote in the margin, the rope held me. It's like 10 exclamation points. She wrote, God showed me. He is who he said he is. I saw my grandmother go on to lose almost everything else that she had. In the last years of her life, I watched her hold that rope when she lost another son, then lost her husband of 60 plus years, then lost her independence, lost to some extent the sharpness of her mind, 
watched her move into a nursing home where she needed full-time care, into a shared room where basically nothing belonged to her. By the time she died, she basically lost everything except Jesus. Everything but her hold on that rope. And that rope held her even there. She died in the hope of resurrection. She died believing that made like him, like him we rise. And that is the essence of Christianity. Do you have a hope like that? Is your hope unkillable? Let's pray. Father, we ask you to add to the grace you've already shown us in sending Christ to live, die, and rise. The grace of new and deeper faith in all that he's done. We come to you for this faith because we know how fickle ours is when we're left to ourselves. We know how quickly our heads are turned. We know how easy it is to forget. We know that if we have to hold on to you, our hold will never be strong enough. And so we ask you by your word, by these basics of first importance, to deepen our faith, to strengthen our hold, to give us this hope that will last through anything. And we pray this in the name of Jesus who lives. Amen.